Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, that was the goal, is just to say, like, hey, I know you probably got a life and you're super busy and you're probably cooking some good food for people you love in your life. But over here in Georgia, I need more books. So <laughs> please help me out. <laughs> Hey readers, I'm Ann Bogle, and this is What Should I Read Next, episode 91. Welcome to the show that's dedicated to answering the question that plagues every reader. What should I read next? We don't get bossy on this show. What we will do here is give you the information you need to choose your next read. Every week, we'll talk all things books and reading and do a little literary matchmaking with one guest. Readers, my book Reading People is coming this September 19th. The subtitle of that book is How Seeing the World Through the Lens of Personality Changes Everything, because this is the story of how my long journey, digging into seven popular personality frameworks, changed my life for the better, and how you can put those frameworks to work for yourself to make real, lasting change in your life, in your work, and in your relationships without going through quite so many hard knocks yourself. To get yourself in the mood for all things personality, pop over to whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash quiz to take our reading personality quiz. It's fast and free and easy to take and hopefully a lot of fun as well. Go to whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash quiz to find out which one of nine reading personality types best describes you. If you want to know more, I made a class for you where I spend an hour diving deeper into all nine types and give each set of readers their own book recommendations. That class is available for purchase in the shop at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash shop. It's $15 there, or you can get it for free when you pre-order Reading People. You also get a free audiobook download of the book when it comes out on September 19th. This is a terrific deal and a rare opportunity to get the book in two different versions, plus my reading personality class at no additional cost. Today's guest is Bethany Armstrong, a lifelong reader who describes herself as the kind of kid who always had a book in her hand. But after studying literature in college, Bethany suffered through a period of bookish burnout. The worst, right? But a surprising thing reinvigorated Bethany's reading life, and you'll hear all about it in today's episode. Today, Bethany's reading life is thriving, and in this episode, we dive into the specifics. We talk about how it's all about the story for her and why it's important for her to keep the balance in her reading life. She shares the three books she recommends more than any others, and she shares the book she hates, and I understand why she thinks some of you will want to come after her with pitchforks when you find out what it is. This is a fun one. Let's get to it. Bethany, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Oh, it is my pleasure. Thank you for coming on today. Bethany, we've connected a little bit online, but I don't know anything about your reading life. 
Can you tell us a little bit about yourself as a reader? Sure. And I think that's funny because I feel like you know a lot about my reading life because I listen to your podcast so much. So I've always been a reader. It's been something that when I look back over the course of my life, I always had a book in hand. Um, and it was just my favorite thing to do. And it still is. Uh, in college, I got really burnt out by um, pursuing an education. And so I just stopped reading on a, a you know, a, a level of enjoyment. And so ironically, it was when I became a mother that my reading life kind of amped back up again. And um, so now um, I am reading a lot more probably than I ever have, um, which is hilarious because I have three kids under six. Um, but I'm really intentional on raising readers and I want them to see that reading is a lifestyle in our home. And so I read a lot and I read a lot while they run around and play um, whatever I have to do so that um, we're creating like a lifestyle where they're um, interested in reading and they want to gravitate towards books. That's my focus. But I do love to read. <laughs> I don't know what your personality is like, but I've always called reading one of my favorite introvert coping mechanisms. <laughs> yes, I, I'm an extrovert. So it's funny that I love to read so much. Um, and my best friend's a counselor. And she always says that she thinks it's because I like to connect, connect with people's stories. And I think she's probably right on that because uh, I, I read not to escape. I read to connect with other people's stories. So it still feels like a social interaction to me, even though I'm curled up on the couch with a book by myself. That's so interesting. Do you remember the conversation that led her to diagnose you like that? Well, we have these type of conversations all the time, but I think the big thing that came is because I do have a book blog. Um, I was telling her like, I don't feel like I really fit into like as a book like in, in the bookstagram world, like on Instagram, like it seems like there are a lot of introverts and I am not an introvert. I'm very much an extrovert. And um, I just remember that like, she just started laughing and she was like, uh, you only read to connect stories. Have you not figured that out yet? And I was like, oh, you're right. Like when I look back over the books that I read and the books I gravitate towards um, and the way that I talk about them to people, um, it's all about the story for me. So um, that's what it all, it always comes back to. But, uh, I do think it's funny that she, like, she definitely thought, wow, you are pretty self-aware and you haven't figured this out yet. So she put on her counseling cap and diagnosed me. <laughs> I think it's easier to see patterns like that sometimes in other people's lives and not your own. And also it doesn't hurt to be a trained counselor. I wouldn't think. It's true. I always tell her, like, thank you so much for all the um, money you saved me in counseling <laughs> by just being my friend. <laughs> I would love to hear an example of the way you would talk about a book. Like, what's the last book you read and how would you describe it? And I'm going to be listening for that social interaction element. So one of the favorite uh, books of 2017 that I read was um, The Polygamous Daughter by Anna LeBaron. And I... I love this book so much because, uh, first of all, this is Anna's first book, and it was a memoir, and it's gut-wrenching, um, but she crafted it in such a way that I felt like I was right on the journey with her. So when she's seven, eight, nine years old, running through the streets of Mexico by herself, I felt like I was right there. Um, 
And it continues to be the story that just haunts and captivates me. Um, and it's been one of the books that I uh, very quickly am recommend to people. Like if they say like, I'm looking for a good book, I will always, you know, I'll go back to, oh, well, one of the best books I've read this year is The Polygamist's Daughter. Um, and, you know, it, it's one, it's just, I, just the way that it captivates me, it kind of leaves me speechless. And so I want people to experience the way that it leaves me speechless. Like you need to read this book because it's going to alter the way that you think. And that's a really good thing, but it's such a story that you get sucked in and you're okay with that. Do you remember what inspired you to read that book? Actually, yes. Yeah. So I was on the book launch team for Love Lives Here by Maria Goff. And Anna LeBaron was, I guess, the moderator for her for that launch team. And I was so impressed with the way that she led that um, the launch team that I like was a creeper and Googled her name and discovered that she had a book coming out. And I promptly pre-ordered it. Because I thought, if she's that good at celebrating someone else's book, I can't wait to see what she's written on in hers. That is very interesting. And not what I would have guessed, just because those two books are so very different. I know, right? They're really, <laughs> they are really different. Um, but that it, that's exactly what happened. Like, I just figured out, like, wow, you know, because she would not talk about the book, her book, in Maria Goff's launch team. And people would mention it and she would immediately redirect it back to Maria's book. And that was another thing that really impressed me is um, she was just focused on doing the job at hand and celebrating Maria Goff's book. And I loved that so much that I was, I wanted to read what she had to say and continues to just share her story with such boldness. It's really inspiring. Wow. That is definitely a books move in mysterious ways connection. <laughs> right. <laughs> Bethany, how do you usually choose the books you want to read? How do you find them? I mean, which however I can, um, friends recommend them to me or on Instagram, or I will Google like best books. You know, if I like this book, what about this book? I take a, a lot of recommendations from your podcast and from other literary and reading podcasts. Um, just however I can squeeze a book in, I want to squeeze it in. And I like a variety of books. Um, and genres. So, um, there's, it, there's always like this desperation on my part, like, okay, where's my next book coming from? And I don't usually really care what it's about. Um, I just want to read and I want to know what, what makes people tick. I do find that I work best if I like, I do like biographies and memoirs a lot, but, um, if they're like heavy subjects, if I find that I'm reading a lot of heavy books and I'll, I'll gravitate and find a light book to read um, just to balance it out a little bit so I don't feel drained. But most of the time, um, I just dive right in to whatever sounds interesting at that moment. Yes, I think a lot of listeners resonate with wanting to keep that balance. It's really hard. <laughs> <laughs> is, is it? What makes it challenging for you? Because I love to read so much. I just want to read whatever the first thing that comes that I encounter first. And then usually about halfway through it, even if I really enjoy it, I realize like, you know, the last three books have been really heavy subjects. And now I'm in another really heavy subject and I need a break. So I typically have about two or three different books going at once. Um, and they're usually all different genres just for the heck of it, just to keep things interesting. Like what three genres are you reading right now? Um, well, interestingly enough, 
Two are actually fantasy, which I think is really crazy because I don't usually do fantasy. But one is uh, 100 Cupboards by Indy Wilson. And I'm doing an audiobook of that so I can listen to it with my kids. And then uh, the other two are uh, Laurie Hernandez's I Got This uh, to Gold and Beyond. And then The Crowns of Crosswald by D.E. Knight. So that those are the three. But so it's a memoir biography and then two fantasy. But even the fantasies are totally different. So it's, you know, keeps you on your toes. Makes it easier to tell them apart. Yes, it does. I mean, they're very distinct. So there's no there's no crossover at all. Bethany, I am eager to talk about your favorites and especially your hated book. Are you ready to dive in? I am. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know how this works. You're going to tell me three books you love, one book that's not for you and what you've been reading lately. And then we'll talk about what you should read next. Okay. Let's start with your favorites. What's a book you love? Okay, so these are the three books that I recommend the most. And they are my first three favorites, but they're the books that when people, they're, they come to mind immediately when people ask, what should I read? Or what do you think I should read? These are the books I recommend. That's a great way to choose. Yeah, there was no contest, really. I mean, I have a lot of favorite books, but these these are the ones that stay at the top uh, pretty consistently. So the first one is The Kitchen Counter Cooking School by Kathleen Flynn. Um, This is a book about a journalist turned chef who realized that home cooks like myself um, didn't know very easy things that they could do while cooking that would transform um, the food that they provide for their families. And so she set up this cooking school and taught chefs how to, or taught home cooks how to do this using culinary methods. Um, this was actually a book that was on your podcast, and I promptly read it and then turned around and read everything by Kathleen Flynn. And then once I got finished, I was so devastated I had read all of the books that she had written. I sent her an email and said, uh, I need more books. Can you please write more? <laughs> and uh, so I, it, you know, it, that, this was a book that taught me how to roast a whole chicken. And gave me a really simple, easy recipe for cooking bread. And just, you know, I love the Food Network. So in my mind, I'm like the next top, you know, next chop chef or whatever. But um, I realized, like, I was missing some essentials. And she does, Kathleen does such a great job to create um, this story of food that makes you fall in love with food, but gives you really practical tips. Um, And I loved it. What did Kathleen say when you emailed her? Did she reply? Yes. So she told me that she's actually working on another book, but that she was really vague with that. It's been about a year, so I probably should follow up with her. But the other thing that she told me was that she actually has, she does this kitchen counter cooking school in Seattle and she has workshops available. And she said she was working on creating this workshop available online and I told her that I would love that she would do that because Seattle's a long way from Georgia. I felt like a crazy person because for all the books that I read and and I have a lot of books that I really love, I rarely reach out to authors. But I seriously, as soon as I got finished with hers, I thought, this woman needs to hear from me and she needs to write more books because I'm not satisfied. (laughs) And uh, so, yeah, I... Like, I was so embarrassed by the fact that I was sitting here writing a fangirl letter to her. But um, 
I couldn't help myself. I, I need more Kathleen Flynn in my life. And so I hope that she delivers very soon. I'm eager. That actually sounds like a really nice email to get. Well, I hope so. But, you know, I always go back to like, is that like total creeper move? Like, did I totally creep her out? And um, but she was very kind, very, very genuine and very appreciative. So um, I think she I hope she appreciated it. That doesn't sound creepy to me. Also, it doesn't sound um, there's definitely a rude way to write an email like that. And, uh, you know, like, why are you taking so long? What is your problem? And that's not, that's not, I need more of your work in my life. That actually sounds like a compliment. Nobody's going to cry when they open that email. Yeah, that was the goal is just to say like, hey, I know you probably got a life and you're super busy and you're probably cooking some good food for people you love in your life. But over here in Georgia, I need more books. So (laughs) please help me out. That sounds good. I imagine what these cooking classes would be like at the kitchen counter in Seattle. And I would love to be able to catch a glimpse via video. That's really fun. It never occurred to me she'd do something like that. Yeah. So she said that when she got finished with it uh, and, you know, she wrote the book while she was doing the kitchen counter cooking school. And so she realized that one, it was really exhausting by the end of the book. And two, um, you know, she talked about how she realized there was a huge need. And so I think it kind of put her in this conundrum of, I did this for investigative journalism purposes. Um, But then she realized like, there's a huge need for this. Yes. And that's interesting because she would not be the first author who started something for investigative journalism purposes and then had it become their entire career. Bethany, tell us about your second favorite. The second one is When Crickets Cry by Charles Martin. And usually if someone says, I need a good book to read, I say, oh, you should read Charles Martin. And I just leave it at that. I mean, never mind the fact that he's written 11, 12 books. I just think all of his books are great. But when Crickets Cry, to summarize it, it's about broken hearts. And so it's about a man who has his heart is broken emotionally. He's lost his wife. And it's in the story, his neighbor is a little girl who needs a heart transplant. So obviously it's a tearjerker right away. But this book means so much to me because it is the book that I read after my mom died. And it was the book that I credit to giving me courage to feel like I can navigate these very rocky waters of grief. And it set me on this whole new path of like, I'm going to pursue um, walking through my grief and coming to some point of healing because of when crickets cry. Um, so I, I'm a big fan of Charles Martin. Um, I have, I usually buy like every single book that he has the day that it comes out. And if he comes to Georgia and I can't go meet him, I cry. He writes beautiful Southern literature. Um, that's just like, it, it just draws you in and the stories captivate you. Um, but to me, it this book is really personal um, because it met me at a place where I, I needed his book and I didn't know how badly I needed it till I finished the book. That's amazing. I don't want to get super cheesy, but that's happened to me. I know that's happened to a lot of readers because if you're, if you're lucky and a reader will tell you about when that's happened to them, it's such, it's such a glimpse into someone's life and some in someone's story. And it just feels like such a gift when that happens. Exactly. It's one of those books that kind of mark you for life, like that you can look back and no matter how many books you read over the course of your lifetime, you can say, this is the book 
that gave me courage or gave me freedom or made me brave or helped me heal and things like that. I mean, I think all readers will agree. That's why we read because we want those moments. Yes. Roseanne Cash actually has this great line that I read in the ideal bookshelf that stuck with me that it's funny how books will find their way to you when you need them. And I, I mean, do you agree with that? Yes, I absolutely agree with that. Me too. Because it keeps happening. I know it doesn't keep happening just to me. Oh, yes, it does. It keeps happening. And I mean, before long, like the three books I love will end up being like the 70 books I love. Like by the time I'm 80, I'll be like, oh, you need books to read? Here, here are all the books that have marked me for life. <laughs> Bethany, what's your third favorite? So my third favorite is uh, the Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Pie Society by Marianne Schaefer and Annie Barrows. This book was recommended to me by a friend and she literally texted me and said, you need to read this book. And so I immediately went and got the book and read it. And I finished it at the beach and I finished it and um, you've probably seen this trend that like when I love an author, I read everything they've ever written. So I immediately set the book down um, and just started Googling Marianne Schaefer's name to see what other books that she had written. And she had written nothing, nothing else because she had passed away about 18 months after this book was published. And uh, that was devastating for me. So I was crying because the book was over and I was crying because literally that was it. That was all that I was going to be able to read for Marianne Schaefer. And um, so this book is really fun because it's um, about a writer who is kind of looking for her next book gig. And she gets a letter from a, a man who lives in on the Guernsey Islands. It's right after the end of World War II. And as they start corresponding, he starts telling her about his eccentric neighbors and they are eccentric and you will never forget them. Um, and she's so mesmerized by these letters. She goes there to meet the, this, you know, hodgepodge community and, um, her life has changed and my life was changed reading it. So, um, I think, this shows that one, it's never too late to write the book that you've been wanting to write. And two, even after you die, your book lives on and people gravitate towards it because that's exactly what Marianne Schaefer did. She actually got sick in the middle of writing, uh, writing this book and her niece, Annie Barrows took over and wrote the rest of the book. Did you go on to read Annie Barrows's work? Okay. So I haven't yet mainly because it's taken me, um, you know, the last year to get over the fact that Marianne Schaefer isn't writing any more books. Um, but I would like to, um, because what I thought was so interesting is that I didn't realize when I was reading the book that Annie Burroughs finished it. Um, and I could never tell why, like the writing was so seamless. She caught the, the characters and the development and the storyline so well from her aunt that you could never tell which woman was writing the book. And I loved that. Um, so I think that I may be ready to try Annie Barrows, but I haven't yet. Okay. I don't want the authors of the world to think devoted readers are sitting around tapping their toes, getting cranky, saying, where are our books? But <laughs> her, the book she wrote independently after finishing Guernsey, The Truth According to Us, did come out 
several years ago and it kind of feels like time. So it came out June, 2015. It could be time. I mean, I don't know that she's working on something. I hope she is because I'm ready to read it. No, I, okay. I really do need to dive into it. I honestly, I just looked up the fact that who they were because I was trying to find out more what other books were available. And I did see that she had written books, but I didn't even move beyond that because I was still like so devastated that Marianne Schaefer had passed away. Um, And I just kept thinking like, it must've been so emotional for this family to have, you know, this project that Annie Barrows was so invested in and then to have to publish the book and then watch it become a New York times bestseller and then also watch the decline of her aunt's health. That must've been devastating. Um, so I actually didn't even know like the, any titles that she had written, which is embarrassing to say mainly because I just got so caught up in how sad her family must have been to watch this amazing project unfold. And then, Miriam Schaefer pass away. Yes. To, to, I, I don't know the timeline. I'm sure when enough distance has passed for the family, that would be a very interesting story that they may be able to share or maybe, maybe they will choose not to. And I would understand that, but, um, yes, writing an emotional story while you're grieving the loss of your aunt and co-author. I just, I can't imagine. It's interesting. Just, I think yesterday, my daughter's finally persuaded my my youngest, my seven-year-old, to pick up the Ivy and Bean series by Annie Barrows that they both adored when they were his age. So he's, I think he's read three books in three days, two days. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) By Annie Barrows. Because before The Truth According to Us, that's what she wrote. She wrote kids books. I mean, she's best known for her Ivy and Bean series that is aimed at younger elementary kids. Okay, Bethany, change the pace. Tell us about a book. Oh, I don't know. You might want to use the word hate. <laughs> you know, you know what comes next. Yes. Okay. So first I just want to say to all of your listeners, please don't hate me because, um, I am leading, I'm like captain of the struggle bus for this book. Like I really have a hard time with this. Um, so the book is the kill a mockingbird by Harper Lee. I, I really don't like this book and I feel so torn to say that because, um, you know, it's how to kill a mockingbird by Harper Lee, but, um, here's why. So I have tried desperately to read this book many, many times. I own a copy of it and I, um, have never been able to get past the second chapter I, um, I love the, I saw a play of it, loved that, tried an audiobook, couldn't handle it. Um, I got to chapter six in the audiobook, so we've made some progress. But what always ends up happening is that I'll get into it and then I just get so bored. I don't really hate it as much as like, we're just at odds. How to Kill a Mockingbird and I, we're just at odds. Um, I want to like this because I'm a reader and this is a really popular book amongst readers, but I, I can't like it. And I'm sorry to say this, but there it is. Okay. This might make you feel better. Or maybe this will be the intriguing tidbit you need to actually propel you to read the book. So I knew before we started talking that To Kill a Mockingbird 
was your choice for this category, but I didn't know why. And I was really wondering if it had to do with, well, let me put it like this. To Kill a Mockingbird, like you mentioned, is beloved, right? Like readers love it. It's talked about, um, people call it the book that changed their lives. It ends up on all kinds of best books ever written, um, books that changed America, books that changed the world. Like it's on those kind of lists, right? The big superlative lists. And yet there's a point of view that says, read it more carefully, people. Atticus Finch is not who you think he is. He is not one of the good guys. And you all need to like actually read the book and see what it says. Is this a theory you're familiar with? Um, not really. Mainly just because like I, I was, I've always been so embarrassed by the fact that I hate this book that I always just thought like people, no one in the literary world would agree with me. Because everyone loves this book so much. So I've never researched it because I've always been like, oh my gosh, I'm like the lone wolf and everyone hates me. But I was really happy when Harper Lee's second book came out and everyone hated that. I was like, finally! (laughs) (laughs) Um, But um, up till now, I've never actually verbalized these thoughts. So this is a big step in my life. Well, we'll see if it brings people out of the woodwork. It probably will. Let's be honest. You haven't talked about this with your counselor friend? No. No, like seriously, I'm so embarrassed that I don't like it. And I'm so desperate to like it. And I keep trying to like it. And I don't that I'm like, my gosh, I want to be a great reader. And I'm really like falling short because I just can't like the audio book was interesting So like Scout would, they would be talking about things that Scout would be doing or she'd be going to school and the teacher would be mean to her and she's about the same age as my oldest. And then I would be like all mama bear and I would be so mad by the end of it. Like, no, no, you should not treat that little girl like that, that I would have to put the book down. And then I would, it would just break my heart. So I was like, no, I, I I can't do this. I can't keep bringing myself to this point where I just want to like crawl through my headphones and, you know, like get upset with someone. It's just not worth the time and energy. You know, as far as reasons for putting down a beloved classic book goes, I think that's a pretty good one. Right. I mean, to abstain from violence. Yes, that's a good reason, (laughs) especially when the character's fictional. But, um, you know, I think here's the deal. I think that through, through for the rest of my life, Maybe not for the rest of my life, but it feels this way because I've been on this journey for so long with the kill to kill a mockingbird. I really do feel like that every couple years I will circle back through it and try it again. And, you know, even when I told you um, that I didn't like how to kill a mockingbird, I even thought like, well, maybe I should try a different audiobook version. Like maybe I shouldn't be so close minded to it, but I still keep hitting the same road bumps with it which is man I don't like this book and I wish I could just let it go but I really want to like it and I really don't so there you go (laughs) I appreciate your bookish confession first of all because that's what people want to hear like readers want to hear what their fellow readers actually think about the books they read not how they feel they're supposed to think those are often very different things. So thank you for sharing. And also let me just share Atticus Finch is not one of the good guys theory. So, and I love the book to be clear. I love the book and this still kind of, I feel like I need to go through to kill a mockingbird with a fine tooth comb. If I really want to explore this theory. And I don't know that I want to, 
because I love the book and I don't know that I want to mess with that. But I first heard this. So this is Malcolm Gladwell's idea about To Kill a Mockingbird that I'm sharing. And he came to my town for uh, we have this great event in Louisville called the Kentucky Author Forum. If you are anywhere in the region, you should absolutely come to one of these things. But back in, I think, 2009, so almost 10 years ago, he was at the Kentucky Author Forum with author Dan Pink. And I think Dan Pink asked him, what are you working on now? And he said, basically, I'm working on a takedown of Atticus Finch. And I looked at my husband and said, did he just say what I think he said? So he went on to explain that he was working on this piece for the New Yorker about how Atticus Finch is not who you think he is. And I could not begin to imagine what he was talking about. And I kept Googling like New Yorker, Malcolm Gladwell, let me read the piece. And it finally came out six, nine months later. It's called The Courthouse Ring and we'll link to it in show notes. But first he says that instead of being a crusader for justice in the trial of Tom Robinson, he just basically encourages his white jurors to swap one set of prejudices for another to let his client off. Then at the end of the story, where if you've actually read the book, well, you've seen the movie, you've seen the play, so you know what happens. But when he asks Scout, like, can you possibly understand what, what we've agreed to do for the good of all concerned? Malcolm Gladwell's like, yeah, so that he conspired to obstruct justice. That's kind of a big deal. So that is Malcolm Gladwell's take. Make of it what you will. Tell us what you think in show notes. We will link to the piece. I do think that's really interesting that there's that there is a different perspective. But at the same time, I think the other thing to remember is that this is Harper Lee's first book. And so I always wonder like if she had been given time and if she had written more consistently, you know, um like more books between how to kill a mockingbird and her second, like would we have seen her develop as an author where people would have said like how to kill a mockingbird was kind of rough, but we've seen her develop into this. Um, and I really, I, that's something I've thought a lot about given the fact that, you know, there was a lot of uproar when her second book came out. Bethany, is there anything you want to be different in your reading life? Yes, actually there is. I want more good books. I <laughs> Wait, is this different? Yes, because here's what happens is that um, if I like a book, I'll stay up to like two or three in the morning and I'll read it. All at, you know, it doesn't matter how many cups of coffee, coffee I have to have the very next day. Like that's that's like details. But I want more books like that that captivate me and more books that um, that I just get so entranced in the story. I want to read everything the author has written. Um, so, and I, you know, I think about this a lot because it's a source of frustration for me where sometimes I don't feel like I have enough really good books on backup. And I feel so crazy saying that, but, you know, I think sometimes as a reader, like you'll get into a book and then you'll like it and it's good and you're glad you read it. Um, but it doesn't make your favorite lists. And I want more books that make my favorite lists because those are the books that I can't shut up talking about. And those are the books that my friends and family are like, for the love, please stop. But I can't stop. And so if they haven't read it, they're going to keep hearing from me. Um, and so I want more books like that. All right. We will see what we can do right after the break. Bethany, welcome back. Thank you. 
okay, my problem here is that I have too many ideas, which is a nice problem to have, but uh, we're going to have to narrow it down somehow. This makes me so excited. Maybe you can squeeze in like a bonus round or something. That would be good. <laughs> the lightning round of all my leftovers. Yes. <laughs> okay. So you love a good story. You read broadly and you know, no big deal, no big thing, but you want a book that'll change your life that you can't stop talking about when you're 80 years old. I mean, it's just a small order. Okay. What do you know anything about Helen Hamp? No, I don't. Okay. So this is 84 Charing Cross Road by Helene Hanf. And this is skinny. It's just over 100 pages. It was published late 60s, early 70s. It's a wonderful read for book lovers. And here's what happens. Just like Guernsey, it's epistolary. It's a series of letters written back and forth between a woman in Manhattan and a bookshop at 84 Charing Cross Road. That is the address in London. Hanf is looking for a book that she can't find. So she writes this well-respected bookshop in London asking for it. And over the years, through a series of letters, the conversation strays from strictly the business at hand to wider musings about books and life. So it's a series of letters. It's about loving and adoring books. Uh, the people are witty and charming and fun to read. It does remind me so much of Guernsey. It's short, it's fun, it's endearing. And I think it's right up your alley. How does that sound? I think you're right. I actually just made a little note here that said, book lovers dream conversation because who doesn't want to have um, an ongoing correspondence with a bookshop owner? Uh, sign me up for that, please. That sounds amazing. Okay, fantastic. But the good and the bad of that book is it's only 112 pages. So that's not going to keep you occupied for very long. I'm fine with that. <laughs> okay. I'm debating a book off the beaten path. It's by an author whose life was changed by investigative journalism. What I really want to know is, I want to know your like nerdy factor. Do you love reading about other people's lives and real lives and not truth is stranger than fiction lives, not invented lives, but like professionals at work? Does that appeal to you? Yes. Yeah, so um, I love, um, is it The Daily Ritual? No, but I love that book, Daily Rituals by Mason Curry. Okay. If it's similar to that, sign me up. I love that book so much because I just like to know how people work and they um, and how they operate. And I mean, no pun intended with the heart surgeons, but... Um, <laughs> I didn't even notice. <laughs> with, but I, I just like to know, like, okay, what makes you, um, what drives you and motivates you and what's your routine like? Those are some of my favorite questions. Okay. This is not daily rituals, but it could be maybe a cousin to daily rituals just because it focuses on one career. Sounds like we could have a family reunion. Sign me up. Okay. I'm thinking of Walk on Water by Michael Ruhlman. So this is about pediatric heart surgeons. And it's funny. I believe his next book he did, he went undercover. Well, not really undercover the way the cops do, but... As a journalist, he enrolled in the Culinary Institute of America, and that he wrote about the experience, and that book went on to become The Making of a Chef, and then that became a trilogy, and then that eventually changed his life when he got signed up to write Thomas Keller's The French Laundry Cookbook because of those books. So, But before he went down that path, 
he was writing about people at work. So I think he might have written about people who build houses, or I might be confusing him with Michael Pollan. I know he wrote about working at an all-boys school. He wrote about people who built boats, I believe, which makes me think of a certain John Cusack movie with Diane Lane. And then he wrote this book about pediatric heart surgeons. So his angle here was to focus on the kind of person who would become a pediatric heart surgeon because you're doing something extremely difficult with very high stakes that is repeating for emphasis, extremely difficult. Yeah. I mean, it's heart surgery at a micro scale. I mean, some of these operations are being done on preemies whose hearts are like the size of your thumb, but what caught my eye about this. And I don't, you know, I don't even know how I first picked this up, but when I was thinking about reading it at my library, probably in like 2003, when it first came out, was the flap copy actually. And one surgeon said that the kind of pressure you feel when you're operating on a tiny preemie is soul crushing, diamond making stress. Doing surgery on tiny babies with congenital heart defects where the families and these children have everything on the line. Like what would make you step up to the plate to say, yes, I will do this with my life. So Michael Roman camps out at the Cleveland Clinic for many months while he's writing this book and interviews a team of medical specialists, uh, the doctors, the nurses who work with them, um, some of their university professors. It's a really interesting behind the scenes look at a profession that thankfully I've never had any direct contact with. How does that sound to you? Oh, that sounds so amazing. I think that, you know, anytime that you get the chance to understand what drives someone like that, it sounds incredible. Okay, good. And I want to keep us well-rounded. So let's go back to fiction for book three. Have you read any Kristen Hanna, Bethany? Um, no, I am familiar um, with the author's name, but that's it. Here's what I like about Kristen Hanna for you. She's written some contemporary, some historical fiction. So there's lots to choose from. She writes reliable, high quality page turners that are all about story. Okay. So technically she writes upmarket women's fiction. That would be the genre description in the publishing world. Really great narrative driven novels designed to appeal to women that have a little more substance than what is often sadly called chiclet, but not the kind of stuff that's contending for the man booker prize. Also, she's written a lot of books, and I'd like that for you, because we know that when you find a book you love, you want to go back and read everything that author has ever written. Okay, I am thinking of The Nightingale. It came out a couple years ago, and what we have here is a World War II novel. We're focusing on two sisters. They're living in the French countryside when the Nazis move in and occupy their city and then their house, and they persevere. And, and join the resistance in the best ways they can themselves. So I don't want to get into like the details of plot, 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 but we have really interesting micro events with a World War II setting and it's really well done. How does that sound to you? That sounds, that sounds amazing. That sounds so good. Is it similar to um, All the Light We Cannot See? I don't think, I mean, yes, the books definitely share something in common, but I think the way the story is told is very different. And even though both are French settings, Saint Malo is just such a unique location. And Hannah has a good location, location, but it's not a walled city on a tiny island. Okay, <laughs> okay. It does read differently. 
I do think this book is a lot like Jojo Moises, The Girl You Left Behind, which I also really like. Oh, yes. And also you could totally binge read The Backlist. If you love The Nightingale, after that I would read her more contemporary work and I would probably start with Magic Hour. And that's about a child psychiatrist who basically quit her job when something awful happened to her professionally. Um, She made the wrong call and horrible things ensued. But then something comes up in her life and she gets called back to duty and it becomes 400 plus really readable pages. And then also another of her beloved books is another historical book set in Russia. It's called Winter Garden. Those are the two I would read next if you love The Nightingale. Okay. Bethany, of those three books, what do you think you'll read next? Probably I'm going to read Walk on Water. I'm so mesmerized by the description. I think I'm going to start there. Well, especially since that one is the most off the beaten path, I am so curious to hear what you think. Oh, I'm so curious to read it. I can't wait. Okay. Bethany, thanks for talking books with me today. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, readers. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Bethany today. Head to the podcast site to share your recommendations for Bethany and to let her know there what you thought of my recommendations. That page is at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash 91, and it's also where you'll find the full list of titles we talked about today. Readers, I have some sad news for you, at least in the short term. We will not be posting a new episode on Tuesday, August 15th. As you know, my book Reading People is coming out on September 19th of this year, but as you probably don't know, unless you are at What Should I Read Next Live, is that I have another book due soon. This one's scheduled to come out in 2018, and that deadline approaches. Those books don't write themselves, and we're taking a week off to make sure that book actually gets turned in on time. We'll be back on August 22nd with your regularly scheduled Tuesday morning episode. If you're on Twitter, let me know there, at Ann Bogle. That is Ann with an E, B as in books, O-G-E-L. Tag us on Instagram to share what you are reading. You can find me there, at Ann Bogle, and at What Should I Read Next. To be the first to hear about upcoming guests and more fun behind the scenes What Should I Read Next news, make sure you're getting our free newsletter. Sign up at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash newsletter. Readers, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. And as Reiner Maria Rilke said, Ah, how good it is to be among people who are reading. Happy reading, everyone. At a time when change is constant and we are pulled in far too many directions, we need a way to stay present to life and to increase our ability to remain calm, think clearly, and maintain our well-being. Many studies indicate mindfulness improves our mental, emotional, and physical health. On a Mindful Moment with Teresa McKee, you can learn how to practice mindfulness and enjoy its many benefits. Tune in for guided meditations and to hear tips and advice from some of the most respected experts in the fields of mental health and mindfulness. The world truly can be a better place. It all starts with a mindful moment. What do you get when you take two childhood friends with a passion for unexplored history and a whole lot of booze? You get us, Queen's Podcast. And here at Queen's, we are spilling the tea on all kinds of women from history. From New Orleans voodoo queen, Marie Laveau, to Marie Antoinette, and everything in between. 
Each queen is paired with a cocktail recipe that will totally get you in the mood to hear the fun, dramatic, and juicy stories of fascinating women from history. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Cheers! Cheers!